Hello and welcome to Further Up and Further In, a podcast. We are now on episode 8 of the podcast in which we will discuss chapter 7 of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, titled A Day with the Beavers. And in the last episode, in which we consider chapter 6, all four of the children stumble through the wardrobe. They assume fur coats to brave the cold of Narnia, where it is, again, always winter and never Christmas, as a product of the curse that the White Witch has brought to the entire land. And at the very end of that chapter, chapter 6, they discover a robin who seems to be signaling to them that he can understand them and that they are meant to follow him. And we discussed how that is the first inkling, the first uh, possibility that spring is beginning to arrive in Narnia, that the winter is beginning to break. Uh, In chapter 7 with the beavers, we'll get the much more overt and simply, uh, honestly, the much more majestic indication of that when Mr. Beaver tells the Pevensey children that Aslan is on the move. And we get uh, his name for the first time, and we get this wonderful description from Lewis uh, that Aslan is coming and that all will be well. And we'll get to see the children's response to that in just a moment. At the beginning of chapter 7, though, we get with these four children what is a, a fairly conventional and classic Uh, beginning to the hero's journey, the quest, uh, the beautiful element of the fairy tale where uh, the hero is summoned out of the ordinary. And that is the discovery that you are lost. And uh, Edmund had hinted at that at the end, that they had lost their way back home in following the robin. And Peter said he hadn't thought of that. And now at the beginning of chapter seven, we get this statement uh, much more directly. Lewis says that none of them felt very comfortable. Lucy uh, was asking, they saw something in the forest. Lucy asked what it was. And Lewis says that she sounded nervous. And then Susan, uh, and again, not for the first time, she made the same sort of request earlier, mentions that they ought to go home after they were frightened by this movement in the trees. And Susan says, let's go home. And then Lewis says this, and then though nobody said it out loud, Everyone suddenly realized the same fact that Edmund had whispered to Peter at the end of the last chapter. They were lost. And this is an important moment for the children because this is when they are passing the threshold uh, where they will decide once and for all to assume the journey that is ahead of them. Until now, until they were lost, they could very easily have doubled back and exited through the wardrobe in the same way Edmund did. The White Witch points out to Edmund the way back to Uh, his country. Tumnus does the same for Lucy. At this point, though, where they are lost, they have passed the threshold where they have now officially begun their journey. And it begins with discomfort. It begins with nervousness, fear, as all of ours do. And yet this is also the moment where the real beauty of Narnia begins to take hold with the introduction of the beavers and ultimately with the introduction of Aslan's name and the the effect his name has on three of the four children being one of wonder and awe and beauty. I can't help thinking of the opening lines of Dante uh, in the Inferno, which Lewis was a medieval and medieval literature, Renaissance literature expert, um, most likely the leading voice in medieval and Renaissance literature at the time, uh, as he taught at Oxford and and later at Cambridge. Uh, But so he would have known Dante, certainly. And he wrote about Dante. 
The opening line of the Inferno, right before Dante is led by Virgil uh, through his great quest into the underworld, through Inferno, and then later on through Purgatory and up into Paradise, uh, the opening lines indicate that Dante, midway through his life, is lost. And it's the same sort of beginning where Dante says, the very first three lines of the Divine Comedy, Dante says, Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark. For the straightforward path, the straightforward pathway had been lost. Dante says, Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark, for the straightforward pathway had been lost. Notice the parallels there that these children find themselves lost, with that same phrase that Lewis had been using to describe Lucy's entrance into Narnia and Edmund's entrance into Narnia, where they found themselves there. They were walking through a wardrobe, and then suddenly they found themselves in Narnia. Now here they are finding themselves lost. They were following the robin one step at a time. The robin flies away, and they realize that they are lost. But also the same realization dawns on Dante. Midway upon the journey of our life, I found myself within a forest dark. Uh, The children will find themselves in a forest, speaking with the beavers, uh, speaking with Mr. Beaver. But like Dante, a guide will come and lead them further into their destiny. For Dante, it was Virgil. Virgil appears and leads Dante through the rings of hell uh, to discover both physically and spiritually the truth and the beauty of God that he's meant to ultimately see when he ascends into paradise. The same happens here that Mr. Beaver arrives right on time to pick up where the robin left off and to lead the children back to the straight path which for them, for them in this story means leading them to his home. And what we'll see in the next chapter, an explanation of the great prophecy, that all will be well when Aslan comes. And the children need to hear this prophecy. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. And later on, when he tells them, when Adam's flesh and Adam's bone sits at Care Paravel and throne, the evil time will be over and done. This is the prophecy that Mr. Beaver knows. And surely all the Narnians know that they are expecting, long expecting the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve. Tumnus was asking about it. The white witch was asking about it. And now Mr. Beaver is here to guide the children out of their lostness through the forest dark and ultimately to their prophecy, to their destinies as kings and queens. They discover the beaver. He comes out. He, the first thing he does is give the, he puts the finger to his lips as though he's telling them to be quiet, which is a great delay tactic of Lewis's. Before he has the beaver speaks, he indicates a sense of his uh, personification, his humanity, that he shushes them to keep quiet because even the trees and Narnia can hear and can be used as spies for the White Witch. But just the glory of discovering a land where animals are sentient, that they can talk and understand us. I mentioned in the previous chapter that by donning these oversized fur coats, the children have been made to seem on the same plane as the animals in Narnia, that they appear animal-like on the outside with these fur coats and are human on the inside. Mr. Beaver will appear animal on the outside. Uh, and will seem to be human with his ability to talk. 
Tolkien in uh, his essay on fairy stories says this, one of the primal desires that lie near the heart of fairy, he's meaning the quality of fairy tales themselves. One of the primal desires that lie near the heart of fairy is the desire of men to hold communion with other living things. The desire of men to hold communion with other living things. What a beautiful statement of our innate and instinctual desire to be at one with our setting, to be in harmony with the cosmos, to be at one with nature, not to be uh, under its oppressive, aggressive onslaught with hurricanes and tigers and uh, so many things that threaten us with our natural surroundings, but to be at one with nature. And, And this reminds me of Romans 8, all of creation is groaning for the day of redemption, that all of God's creation, mankind and animals and plants and stars and oceans, all is groaning for the day of redemption. And for Tolkien to say one of the primal desires of man is to hold communion with other living things is such a glorious statement. And here we see it where man and beast are talking together, indeed having tea together, that Lewis captures such a beautiful portrait of what Narnia is. Narnia is a land where things are right where things are beautiful and glorious and mighty and merry and joyful and majestic. It's on, not now. It's under a curse now. Always winter and never Christmas. But this picture of the beavers and of the Pevensey children holding communion together fits right in line with Tolkien's thought that it's one of our primal desires. Uh, Mr. Beaver speaks to them. The first thing he says is going to be a familiar statement to us. Lewis says, uh, the beaver drew back, saying to them in a hoarse, throaty whisper, further in, come further in, right in here. We're not safe in the open. And I mentioned earlier when Lucy moves through the wardrobe that that statement moving further in and further in is repeated. In the last battle, uh, the second to last chapter in the last battle is titled Further Up and Further In. It's Jewel's fantastic statement. Uh, where they leave the Shadowlands and they move further up and further in into the ultimate Narnia, where all will be well. Finally, the beaver is echoing that statement here. Further in, come further in, right in here. We're not safe in the open. And this looks forward to something he'll say next chapter about Aslan, who's not a tame lion. And that's a statement about Aslan that will ride all the way through to the end as well. In the last battle, King Tyrion reminds everybody that Aslan is not a tame lion. But here he says, we're not safe. And in the next chapter, he'll say that Aslan is not safe. He's not safe, but he is good. He is the king. And that difference is of utmost importance. That no, we are not safe out in the open. No, things are not well right now. We must fight and we must endure and we must persevere because Aslan is not safe. What we are called to is not a safe life. We are not called to a boring life. We are called to an extraordinary adventure that these children are discovering because it is an adventure set by an extraordinary king. It is a calling of high importance and of great nobility. And no, we are not safe. And then he asks them the question that we've heard asked before, especially by Tumnus to Lucy. Mr. Beaver says, are you the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve? And Peter says, we're some of them (laughs) that he acknowledges. Yes, we are sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. We are some of them. 
And they are some that count. They are the four that count to the prophecy. But notice Mr. Beaver says, are you the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve? Which could mean the ones that Mr. Tumnus warned him of. He's about to show them the handkerchief that Lucy gave Tumnus as a sign of good faith, that he was sent by Tumnus, that he is a friend of these children. So he could be meaning, are you the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve that Tumnus indicated? Or more importantly, he could be saying, are you the ones we've been waiting for? Are you the long prophesied sons of Adam and daughters of Eve? With that beautiful Narnian introduction, are you human? Are you the ones we are waiting for? The ones who will set all things right for us here? He shows them the handkerchief, the, the handkerchief, Lucy's handkerchief that she had given Tumnus. And then we move to one of the greatest moments in this chapter, certainly one of the greatest, greatest moments in the book. And that is the first utterance of Aslan's name. And I want to spend some time on this because it's, the setup is so striking. Listen to how Lewis sets this up. That's right, said the beaver. Poor fellow. Talking about Tumnus. He got wind of the arrest before it actually happened and handed this over to me. He said that if anything happened to him, I must meet you here and take you on to... Here the beaver's voice sank into silence and it gave one or two very mysterious nods. Then, signaling to the children to stand as close around it as they possibly could so that their faces were actually tickled by its whiskers, it added in a low whisper, they say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do. But the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it has some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now. At the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. This is one of the greatest paragraphs in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. First, the military language that Mr. Beaver uses. They say Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed, as if he might have sailed from across the sea or somehow flown into Narnia. He's on the move. He is mobilizing. Aslan is coming. The king is coming, which echoes something Tolkien uh, references in The Lord of the Rings. The return of the king is upon us. All will be well. What a beautiful statement. And he pulls the children in close to whisper it to them. And they feel how magnificent that is, even though they don't even know who Aslan is yet. And that's a point where I, I think I might have referenced it before, where I highly recommend anybody reading Narnia to begin with this book. Begin with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Do not begin with The Magician's Nephew, because if you do, 
then by the time you read the statement from Mr. Beaver, you do already know who Aslan is. And Lewis says, none of the children knew who Aslan was any more than you do, right? And so we need to feel the awe and the wonder of this moment along with the children in order to get its full weight. And I need to mention something else just biographically with Lewis. Lewis, by his own admission, stated that it was at this point in the story, he wasn't quite sure where he was going with it. He had the image of a fawn and a lamppost and parcels and a girl in a snowy wood. Uh, And he had that image that he began with and ran with. But at this point, he said he wasn't quite sure what was going to happen. And then he said, and suddenly Aslan came bounding into the story. He said he had been recently, by this point in the writing, been dreaming of lions. And he said Aslan bounded his way into the story. And he said he swallowed up the entire book and indeed all seven books. And so for him, when he said, perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, that was very real for Lewis, where he had this very real moment of not quite knowing who Aslan was and what was going to happen. But he wrote him into the story and he took over the story. Uh, But the most meaningful part of this this moment in the story is the response that the children have to hearing the name of Aslan. This is what Lewis would write about regarding what he called the numinous. And the numinous being that strong feeling, that goosebump producing feeling of awe and wonder that occurs when a person experiences the overwhelming and gloriously holy presence of God in and through the things that God has made. It's a, it's an experience with the holy. And in fact, there's a book uh, by a man named Rudolf Otto, who's a German writer, a book titled The Idea of the Holy that Lewis mentioned in one of his letters to be one of the most significant books in his life, one of the most influential books. And Rudolf Otto details this idea of the holy, this encounter with the holy that he calls the numinous. It's this feeling of beauty and wonder mixed with fear and awesome uh, humility that comes when you encounter something of absolute glory. Something, and this occurs throughout the Bible, something that akin to what Moses felt when he encountered God on the mountaintop, um, Isaiah's unworthiness in the presence of God's holiness. Woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips. Um, you have uh, Mary's encounter with the angel of the Lord when he announces that she will give birth to the Christ. Um, anyone who marveled at the miracles of Jesus, the centurion and his confession at the foot of the cross, surely this was the son of God. It's this reaction and this response that you have to the awesome and to the holy, that is, uh, although it's an emotional experience, it's one that you cannot be taught, it is awakened within you, it is a response to something that is objective, the noumen, uh, the, th- the thing that provokes the numinous, is a very objective, very real thing, although the, the feeling of it is largely lodged in the soul and in the heart. Uh, Lewis writes this in God in the Dock, He says this, I still think Otto's account of the numinous is the best analysis of religious experiences we have. I believe it is a mistake to regard the numinous as merely an affair of feeling. Admittedly, Otto can describe it only by referring to the emotions it arouses in us, but then nothing can be described except in terms of its effects in consciousness. 
We have in English an exact name for the emotion aroused by the numinous, which Otto writing in German lacked. We have the word awe. And this goes back to um, Proverbs 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. The numinous is the beginning of all wisdom. The fear of the Lord, the right fear, is the beginning of all wisdom. Uh, Wisdom begins in wonder, Socrates said. And here in Narnia, the children experience this sense of wonder at the name of Aslan. Lewis says, at the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump in its inside, which reminds me of what happened to Elizabeth when she meets Mary and she feels her womb jump when it experiences the atmosphere in the presence of Christ. There's something that jumps on the inside. Edmund felt horror, right? It's this opposite, the sense of terror having to do with punishment, whereas the other children feel the sense of awe and wonder that is an uplift, an upsurge. It's this electric feeling of glory. It made Peter feel suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or strain of music had floated by her, and Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it is the beginning of the holidays or the beginning of summer. The name of Aslan provokes this sense of longing and this ache, uh, what Lewis in Surprised by Joy calls sinsucht. It's the, another German word that involves this innate instinctual ache and longing we have for the transcendent, for that which cannot be explained or rationalized in merely material terms. In Mere Christianity, he has this famous phrase on this longing that we have where he says, if I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. This is a statement in Surprised by Joy uh, when Lewis is describing his upbringing. He says he read... uh, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's Saga of King Olaf. And he said he came across a line that said, Balder the beautiful is dead, is dead. He said that line awoke within me a longing for what he called northernness, a longing for holiness, a longing for absolute heroic uh, majesty and joy And that stab of longing he felt he never got away from. And he details in Surprise by Joy several experiences that prompted this. But here in Narnia, what provokes that sense of longing, that inconsolable longing, and that desire, and that wonder, and that awe is the name of Aslan. Even though they did not know who Aslan was, it was something about his name that provoked the idea of the holy And it's such a great moment. It prepares them for the prophecy that Mr. Beaver will give them. Uh, They ask about Tumnus, and Mr. Beaver uh, invites them back to his house for dinner. He says, we can't talk about that here. Um, Devin Brown talks about this. This is just a a humorous moment where he talks about this this beaver dilemma that Lewis wrote himself into, where no other time in the Chronicles of Narnia does Lewis give the name of the animal as the name that they go by, like he does here with Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And it presents a problem because suppose there's a third beaver in Narnia. What's his name or what's her name? And so it it gives the impression that there are only two beavers in all of Narnia. And it actually might answer the, the question why Lewis never has any other beavers in Narnia. Throughout the whole Chronicles, he never writes in another beaver. 
And perhaps that's the reason he kind of wrote himself into a corner. He doesn't call Reepicheep Mr. Mouse. He doesn't call Jewel Mr. Unicorn. He doesn't call Shift Mr. Ape or Puzzle Mr. Donkey. Uh, this is the only time he has Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. So it's just a bit of a humorous point about um, why none of the other books detail any of the other beavers. Um, it's quite interesting. Edmund is zeroed in on here. As they arrive at uh, the Beaver's Dam, Edmund sees the two hills that the White Witch had referenced, and he sees her palace in the middle. And Lewis says this, uh, Between the hills he thought must be her palace, only a mile off or less, and he thought about Turkish delight and about being a king. And I wonder how Peter will like that, he asked himself, and horrible ideas came into his head. Notice the order of Edmund's desires. Peter and Susan and Lucy are desiring uh, that numinous experience with Aslan, but they're also desiring to eat at the beaver's home. They're desiring more information. They're desiring right things. Edmund is still stuck in the toxic trap of the Turkish delight. And notice his desire is first for Turkish delight and then for being king. Lewis says he thought about Turkish delight and about being a king. This is a problem with what Augustine calls the order of your loves. Edmund's loves are out of order. He desires Turkish delight more than he's desiring to be a king. And his desire to be a king is a perverted one. He wants to be king so he can rule over Peter. But he will be a king. He's destined to be a king. That's a love he ought to have. There is a throne at Caer Paravel with his name on it. But what has superseded that right love is the wrong inordinate love for Turkish delight, which we know to be the aftermath of the curse of the poison that occurred several chapters ago. And one of the great moments of this chapter is when they arrive at the dam, they walk in, Mrs. Beaver is preparing a meal and she's at work at her sewing machine. And she says this when they come in, so you've come at last, she said, holding out both her wrinkled old paws, at last, to think that ever I should live to see this day. Now, notice two things that are going on there. First, the repetition of that phrase, at last. So you've come at last, at last. These are words that will be used for Aslan to describe his arrival, Aslan at last. But they also echo the language of Genesis 2, when Adam sees Eve and he says, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. I shall call her woman. It's the first recorded words in human history. At last, this is it. It's language of fulfillment, language of consummation. A desire has been met and satisfied. And her desire has been for the prophecy to come true. Just as much as Adam's desire is for someone like him, someone that goes with him, a partner, one who goes with me, one who is like me. And she says, so you've come at last at last, that beautiful Genesis language of desire and fulfillment. All four are in Narnia together. The prophecy is starting to come true. Aslan's on the move. At last, it's here. But then the second thing she says, to think that ever I should live to see this day. To think that, I, that ever I should live to see this day. It reminds me of Simeon from uh, Luke 2, when Simeon sees the baby Jesus, and he praises God for letting him live long enough to see this prophecy fulfilled, that the Christ is here. 
and he lays eyes on him. And for Mrs. Beaver to bless the day that she sees the four children in Narnia is a glorious statement. We end the chapter with one of Lewis's grand detailings of uh, the extraordinary experience of feasting um, that Lewis has a knack for turning ordinary things into extraordinary glories. And he does so by taking a great deal of time detailing um, the uh, different fixtures of the beaver's dam. It looks an awful lot like a British cottage. And then detailing the dinner that they enjoy together. He remarks on each individual thing they eat and how well it is prepared and how glorious it smells. And interestingly, throughout that whole account, Lewis describes what Peter is up to, that he's out with Mr. Beaver fetching the fish. Susan is draining the potatoes and helping Mrs. Beaver. Lucy is helping Mrs. Beaver dish up the trout. And it describes this whole communion scene where they are all enjoying food together. And Edmund is not mentioned, either because he is uh, too snooty to help out or because he is exempt and exiled from this picture of glorious communion that everybody is eating together, everybody is helping together, everybody is working together, except Edmund. And his name is not mentioned. Because remember, Edmund is still pining for Turkish delight. His mind and his stomach is geared toward Turkish delight instead. And we are given what Devin Brown calls an almost sacramental quality of ordinariness. That this ordinary dinner with this ordinary home with the beavers is an extraordinary event because of the communion and the feasting. So thank you for listening. Next week, we will look at chapter eight, titled, What Happened After Dinner? The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.